Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is still speaking, and he says to his disciples, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> um, we are continuing in our series in the Lord's Prayer, or in the Sermon on the Mount. We get to this section on the Lord's Prayer this morning, and um, I just want to start by saying uh, there's probably like hundreds of different sermons you could give on this one section. Um, it was frustrating because there's more that uh, I can't say today than I actually want to say, and so um, we'll come back to this idea of prayer. It's one of the things that we are looking at. Of uh, um, we've been doing these things kind of called Village Academy. We're going to call it something different. Um, but basically looking at uh, parking midweek uh, missional communities and gathering together um, to do some kind of practical equipping. And one of the things we're going to look at probably in the autumn is this idea of prayer, um, one of the things we're thinking about at the minute. So, so we'll all just have to be satisfied to be dissatisfied with what we can't and can't look at today. And so um, what I want to start with is just the context in which um, we, the thrust of really what Jesus is driving at um, over last week, this week, and next week. And so let's look at the very first uh, verse of chapter 6. This is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, again, speaking to essentially believers, to Jews, the people of God, right? So, and what does he say? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so here's Jesus, and he's speaking to essentially believers, the people of God. Um, and, and what I want us to remember as we go through this sermon again is what he's not saying throughout this sermon is this is what you need to do to be a Christian. This is what you need to do to be a follower of Jesus. What he, what he essentially is doing is rather describing what a Christian looks like. We've said this isn't just a sermon, but it's a silhouette of Jesus, of the Savior. It's, it's, what, it's who Jesus is. It's what he is like. Um, and so 
all these things that he tells us and commands us to do, we actually see him doing throughout the Gospels. Um, so today he's going to talk about praying. And when we look at Jesus, he's constantly uh, stealing time away to go and be with his father um, to pray. And so he's saying this is what God is shaping you to look like. So if you're a Christian this morning, um, if you've been like me going through this Sermon on the Mount, it's on one hand deeply encouraging, but on the other hand, sometimes discouraging because it can be really challenging at times. Um, it confronts us, it, it, it meddles uh, with who we are as Christians or who we think we are in this kind of way. Um, but it should be encouraging, and I want us to be encouraged this morning, right? Jesus says in Philippians, in, in the first chapter, he says, he who began, uh, Paul says, he who began a good work in you, that is God himself, will be faithful to complete it. And so if we are going through this sermon um, and there are things in here that you're like, man, that, I know this is what a Christian is supposed to look like, but man, I just fall short in that. I just feel discouraged in that area in my life. We can still be encouraged because it is God who is working, right? He goes on in Philippians 2 to actually say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so as we see this sermon of, of what a Christian should be like, who are the people that call themselves followers of Jesus and what should their life look like? What should our practices be? Be encouraged because this is essentially what God is shaping you into. Um, and let's pray to that end as we'll talk about. Um, and so the gospel transforms our heart. The gospel doesn't just make you a Christian. It continues to make you into a Christian day by day by day. And we saw that last week, right? Um, as we give, our motivation for giving um, is because what we have received. Um, it's all grace. And so the gospel will continue to change us. Um, and as we looked at last week, and we'll see this week, one of the things that it, it changes or should change is the motivations of our heart. We have these internal motivations, right? It's why we do the things that we do. And this is what Jesus is trying to dig down into. And so he gives us these examples of spiritual practices, right? So he says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, make sure your motives are right. Make sure you're doing them for the right reasons. Why do we do the things that we do? What motivates us? If you think about what's one of the main motivating factors as a human being, why we do the things you do, or why we as a human race do the things that we do or don't do, what do you think it would be? I think one of them, and maybe one of the primary ones, is fear, right? It's why one of the most common commands in the Bible when Jesus or angels or anybody from heaven shows up, he's like, don't be afraid. Like, fear not. Because we are fearful kind of creatures. We are fearful people, and it's what drives us all the time, right? We're afraid that we might not, we're, we're afraid of insignificance. We're afraid that our, my, our life might not count or matter. We're afraid of not being in control. We're afraid of being lonely. We're afraid of not meeting some kind of standard that we have in our mind. We're afraid that I'm not doing enough. We're afraid of what other people think of us. And this is what Jesus is really trying to get at, isn't it? When you pray, why are you praying? When you give to the poor, why do you do that? When you fast, when you do whatever your spiritual disciplines are, when we're obedient to Jesus, why is it 
that we're doing these things. And a lot of times it's out of fear. And religion just makes it worse, doesn't it? Right? All religion out there kind of has this idea that God's out there and you must do something to kind of uh, attain his favor. You've got to climb this kind of moral ladder to reach nirvana or to reach God or to reach whatever it is. But Christianity is explicitly the opposite of that. It's the only religion that says, no, that's not how it works. God actually comes to us. He takes on flesh. He moves into the neighborhood. He actually walks beside us and says, listen, you would never be able to do enough to reach God. You would absolutely have to be perfect. And so I'm going to do that for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live the life that you should have lived. I'm going to take the penalty for, for not living that life for you so that you then can be reconciled to God. It's God coming to us. It's God doing the heavy lifting, right? It's, 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 it's the opposite of what kind of... And so that's why God, when Jesus shows up, he can say, hey, don't be afraid. Fear not. All the reasons that you might need to be afraid are gone. You don't have to worry about being significant enough or being in control. You don't have to worry about what other people think. And so God says, let's switch out this motivating driver from fear to faith. Let's have our motivation be faith and not one of fear. And this is the context that we find ourselves in. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. You don't have to worry about what other people think. He says it's possible to do the right thing with the wrong motive. And a lot of times it is a motive of fear. I'm afraid I won't be accepted. I, I need to be validated. I'm afraid no one will see me. What tells me I'm spiritually significant when we have our, our motivations wrong? What tells me I'm spiritually significant is other people. And when we think that way, then our motivations get all tangled, right? We pollute our piety with our pride. We're worried about what other people think. And pride takes on a lot of different forms, right? It's not just a kind of, you know, pride. Pride can a lot of times just be insecurity, we're insecure. Why? Because we're worried about what other people think. And so if our primary motivation for serving, for prayer, for going to MC, for being seen here, just even coming this morning, is to be seen and accepted by others, then Jesus says, well, that's it. That's all you get out of it. You've received your reward. Like, that's all there is to it. Because you're not actually doing something in connection with the Father, with God. It's actually more about what other people think. And so whatever they think, that's it. Now, again, don't confuse being seen by enjoying community, right? We should enjoy community. Community. It's why it's our Father and not just my Father. Um, and so there, when we come together, when we are seen by each other, being known by each other in the right kind of way, that should be enjoyable. It should be, that's a good thing. But what he's driving at is, what is motivating our spiritual practice? And as we saw last week with giving and now with prayer, there's just an assumption. So in verse 5, 6, and 7, it's when you pray, when you pray, and when you pray. Um, there was an assumption that they would be praying. And as good Jews, they would have been. They would have had set times of prayer. They would have prayed three times a day, right? Here's the thing about um, prayer. I don't know if you're like me. I assume you are. If I ever want to make people feel guilty, 
just talk about prayer. Because we all feel guilt, like you're like, oh no, prayer, we're gonna, oh, I don't do that enough, right? How many of you are like, oh, you know what, I think I pray too much, <laughs> right? I'm always like, oh, I could pray more, or I could be better at that, or there's always a sense of lack that I have when, when we talk about prayer, prayer life. Jesus was a prayer, right? All the time we see these examples of him getting up, leaving the crowd, um, which, was in, which is incredible because it's often when there's this massive crowd, Jesus, Jesus, all the accolades, all the whatever, he's like, I got to get out of here. He's like, I got to go be alone. I got to go to this secret place. I just got to go be with the Father. And I wonder if that's because there's this temptation to stay where all the accolades are, where all the acceptance are, where we're seen practicing our righteousness. And at the height of those times, often Jesus would leave. He'd leave. And he would just go be in the secret place. And this is what Jesus does. This is what we should do. And that's what prayer actually is. Prayer is just a conversation with God. Right? So often you'll hear Jesus use this language. I just do what the Father tells me to do. I just say what the Father tells me to say. He's just in conversation with his Father. We hear the voice of God and we respond to that. Prayer isn't a one-sided thing. I think oftentimes maybe that's the way we think about it, right? We think of prayer as just us talking to God. But it's not. It's a, it's a conversation. It, it should be us hearing from God as well. And the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way that we hear the voice of God is this way, right? We hear it through the scripture. So we, we pray in conjunction with reading the Bible. Um, that's how we hear the word of God. Again, it's not the only way. So again, all these things tend to kind of go to extremes, right? So you'll have people who don't ever really want to talk about the Bible, but they want to talk about how they hear from the Lord, right? And so God said this to me, and I was in prayer, and he said this, and I need to tell you this because God told me to tell you this and, and all of that. And that's kind of one end of the extreme. Or there's this other end of the extreme where this is it and this is all you need. As if God never speaks to us, never impresses on us, never um, assures us personally of things, right? It's just Bible and me talking to God, and that's it. Um, but the truth is, it's, it's, it's neither of those extremes. It's both of those. But the primary way that we hear God speaking is through his word. And it's also the way that you know that when he does impress on you personally, when he does assure you of things, right? When you feel like the Lord is leading me to X, Y, and Z, what gives you the assurance is the scripture because that should sound like this. If that sounds different than this, then you probably... Um, have the wrong person, right? Because we know, the scripture tells us that the, 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 the sheep hear his voice, they know his voice, they know what Jesus' voice sounds like. If someone came to me and said, you know, Lucas, I was talking to your wife, but man, she's a really spiteful, catty, um, sharp, mean person, I'd be like, are you, are you talking about my wife? I don't, I don't, that doesn't sound like my wife most of the time. No, I'm joking. <laughs> That doesn't sound like my wife. That doesn't sound like her voice. And so the most effective prayers that we have are ones that are going to be informed by the word. It's us hearing from God through his scripture, us listening to that still small voice, his spirit, 
affirming, confirming, convicting, leading us in that. And so when we read the scripture, we're asking ourselves, well, this is something that Jesus would pray for. What would Jesus pray for? What were some of the things that he prayed for? And when we do that, when our prayers are informed by the scripture, it kind of gets us past our, our wish list praying, right? Wish list praying is the easiest kind of form of prayer. I need this. I want this. Can you give me that? Can you help me with this? Again, nothing wrong with that. We're actually told to ask God for things. But it gets us beyond just that. Paul would pray prayers like this. He would say that the, he, he's praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. He prayed that you would know the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of the love of God that passes our understanding. Do we pray those kind of prayers? That God would enlighten us, that he would assure us of his love, that we would know that beyond a normal human understanding. And so are we praying in line with the heart of God, with the desires of God? And so Jesus here has given us some wrong ways to pray and right ways to pray. So let's start with the negative, the wrong ways. In verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, the actors, as we saw last week, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, that's it. They've received the reward. What is Jesus saying? A hypocrite is someone who only prays in public. There's no private prayer life. The only time these guys are praying is to be seen by other people. It's only when other people are watching. They need to be seen in the synagogue. They're in the most prominent places, on the street corners. Wow, that person, look at that guy. Couldn't even make it to the synagogue before he had to stop and pray. That guy's holy. That guy must really walk with the Lord. Jesus says these aren't prayers at all. These aren't prayers. You're just talking to yourself because it's all about you and what other people think of you, right? You ever known anybody like that? They pray with a different kind of cadence in their voice. All of a sudden, their vocabulary expands out to all these flowery kind of terms, this intensity, well, for other people. What else does he say? Verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And when he says Gentiles here, what he's talking about really is pagans. He doesn't mean just ethnically non-Jews. He means the people who are pagans uh, praying to false gods. And, and he says pagan prayers just use many kind of phrases, many kind of words, repetition. He says, this isn't a conversation, it's an incantation. Right? There's no exact words that we have to use. It's not by using more words. We can't manipulate the hand of God with the right combination of words. One of my favorite uh, stories from the Old Testament as a kid um, it was in 1 Kings 18. Do you remember this? The prophet Elijah, he's having this like prophet battle, kind of like a rap battle, I, I kind of assume, back in the day. And he's like, I tell you what, you get, you know, your pile of firewood and you pray to your God and that he would send down fire and light that. And, and what did they do? 
Man, they went for it over and over. They're praying all these long prayers and incantations, and Elijah's just mocking them. He's like, man, maybe your God's on the toilet. Or, yeah, that's literally one of the things he said. That's not me being funny. That's in the Bible, which I think is hilarious. That's probably why I thought it was funny, because my seven-year-old thinks poo is hilarious. So <laughs> maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he went on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. Pray longer. Pray louder. And nothing happened. They're cutting themselves. They're doing everything to try to get God's attention with all of their passionate, long incantations. And nothing happens. And then, 1 Kings 18, Elijah the prophet came near and said this, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's it. Boom. Fire falls from heaven, lights the whole thing on fire. That's after he had doused it in water, right? That's it. It didn't take hours and hours. It didn't take anything. It was just one simple, direct prayer. The prayer that they would know who God is through his power and might. We see the Ephesians do the same thing, right? I was in Ephesus a few weeks ago, and I stood in the theater. It would see about 25,000 people, and we're told in Acts that it gets full. And for two hours straight, they were saying, um, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is, like this incantation over and over for two hours. So if we're afraid just to pray short, normal normal language kind of prayers? Is it because we think that people will judge our spirituality? Because some people love to pray for other people to hear out of their pride. And other people won't pray in front of other people because of their pride. It's the same thing. I want to be prayed. I, I, I want to pray so that people will think well of me. I don't want to pray because people might not think well of me. We're both obsessed with the same thing. What other people think. Well, I don't know how to pray with, with that extravagant language. Or, or what, if I, what if I only can pray for one thing and then I don't know what to say after that? Well, all of our heart and motivation is directed to other people. Instead of not caring what anybody else thinks. And just praying normal prayers. But I would ask that you would do. This is the need that I, I, I need for you to meet. And the Bible knows that there are times that we don't know how to pray because it says when we don't, the Spirit prays for us anyway. <laughs> That's amazing. And so let's not be worried about what other people think. When you're in MCs together, when we're praying together at our prayer night when we come together, may, all we really care about is God and what He thinks. So it doesn't really matter how, man, that person, we're not ranking each other's prayers. That was a really good one. Man, I could never pray like that, so I'm not going to pray in front of other people. Just talk to God. Let's do that in front of each other and not worry about what each other thinks. So we pray. Um, we don't fear men too much. But we also don't want to not fear God enough, right? It's Father, God, we're hallowing his name. We talk to God 
um, not as our pal, not as our buddy, but as our father. With reverence, yes, because he is God, but also because we are his children, we can come before a king. I think it was Spurgeon that said, no one would dare wake up a king at one o'clock in the morning to ask him to get him a drink of water unless it was his own child. I love that. Because that's us. We can wake up the king, not that our sleeps, at one in the morning to bother him for something really insignificant because he's our father. Ecclesiastes, we went through that series. Remember in chapter five, it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. I think this is sacrifice of fools. (laughs) For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We don't need long flowery prayers. Let our words just be few and simple and direct to who God is. Why can you let your words be few? Why don't you need big, long, extravagant kind of prayers? Verse 8, don't be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you even ask him. We're not trying to impress God. He already knows what we need. Prayer is not informing God of anything. You don't inform God of anything when you pray. God knows all. He sees all. We're not praying to let God in on something. Nothing occurs to God. And so the question then that raises is, well, then why do we pray in the first place? If God already knows, then why bother praying? Let me give you a quick four reasons um, very quickly. One, it expresses our dependence on God, Right? We're actually communicating that we need God. Nothing nothing expresses our dependence on him more than prayer. There's a sense in which we just trust God, yes. But we express that in prayer. We're trusting him. We're coming to him, letting him know our needs, asking him for his protection, worshiping him in prayer, telling him what we think about him, how we feel about him. It expresses our dependence on him. Number two, it draws us into deeper intimacy with him, into fellowship with him, right? Imagine your relationship with your significant other, spouse, boyfriend, whatever. What if all of our relationship was just an exchange of information? All all I ever said to Sue was what I need. This is 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 what I want. This is what I need. This is what I want. And that's all she did to me. That's it. You're like, that's a terrible marriage, Right? We talk about more than that. We share our lives together. We spend time together. We share our fears or our worries or our needs, all of these things. But it's, sharing, it's a shared life together where we think about certain things. We just enjoy time together. And this is what God wants from us. God actually wants to be with you. God wants you to know him. He already knows you. He wants you to know him. And we do that as we commune with him. We do that as we spend time in the word and praying, as we commune with him at the table together in community. We don't need to try to manipulate um, some reluctant God. 
Prayers can be simple because they're predicated on a familial relationship. He's our Father. Third thing, third reason, then God wants us to be involved in eternal things. How amazing is that? God is sovereign over all. There's nothing that happens or doesn't happen outside of his will. But there are things that he preordains that only happen because we pray. So God, God, nothing happens outside the will of God, but God in his sovereignty says, I'm going to preordain that there's certain things that will only happen when you pray. Now, does that mean that we're in control of that? No, God is. But he's preordained that some things will only happen through prayer. Remember when the disciples are trying to cast out this demon? And Jesus is like, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't just tell that God. You can't just tell that demon what to do. That's the kind of demon that only can be cast out through prayer. You're like, well, wait a second. What do you? There's only some things that can only happen through prayer? Oftentimes, we, we, we see God changing his mind, if you will, through prayer, right? God, we come and we ask God, what, if this happens, will you do this? It's through prayer. It's, it's through us asking. I, I want to give my kids good gifts and good things, right? I want my natural inclination to be yes if it's good for them. But that doesn't mean that I'm just constantly giving things to them without them asking. Sometimes they have to ask. And when they ask, I say yes. But I probably wouldn't have done that had they not asked. So God preordained certain things to be involved in that, right? There might be certain healing. There might be certain salvations. There might be certain hardships that are alleviated through our prayer. And here's the thing. We don't know which ones are which, Only God knows those things. And so we come to him in prayer, right? Again, that goes back to the first one. It's it's expressing our dependence on him because he is sovereign. It's because he knows everything already. That's why we go to him. Some people say, well, if God knows everything already, if God's all powerful and he knows everything, then why would you pray? And my question is, why would you pray if he wasn't all powerful? If God didn't know everything, why would you pray? Why would you ask somebody like that to intervene in your life? We pray because we have that confidence. Fourth, then, it brings glory to God. We recognize God is the source of all power, his provision, his protection, the joy that he brings to us. It's it's us confessing his sovereignty and his majesty. So we're not to pray empty prayers. We're not to pray these big, long prayers that are empty. So is it wrong to pray long prayers? Is it, long to spend, is it wrong to spend extended time in prayer? Do I have to like be on the clock when I'm praying in front of other people? No. This isn't about the length of prayer. There's lots of long prayers recorded in the Bible. Luke 18, Jesus actually gives his, his disciples this parable about persistence in prayer, about not giving up, about continuing to pray. But this passage, what he's getting at to, is not about the length, but about the motivation. What is motivating us to pray or not pray publicly is fear of other people. And so what's the right way to pray then? We'll move quickly through here. The right way to pray, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, 
and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We should have a prayer life that no one else sees, right? It's not only a private prayer life, but it's certainly not only a public prayer life. If you only have a public prayer life, then Jesus is like, that's, that's pagan. That's not Christian. We need to actually consider then what's gone, what's gone wrong there. We should have both, right? Our Father can't be prayed privately. It's communal, right? It's, it is together. So Jesus is pressing on us. Do you have a heart that wants to be with God, to know Him? So here's some questions that maybe help diagnose this. Um, and again, these are cutting for me as well. Do you pray more frequently or fervently in public or in private? Is your public prayer very different? Do you enjoy being alone with God? Is that a source of, of enjoyment and joy for us? Are my public prayers an overflow from my private prayer life? So on one hand, it should be, you know, when, when we gather together for prayer, it shouldn't, there can be those real long, awkward silences. And again, there's nothing wrong with, with a time of silence. Uh, I don't think we have to fill every moment with, every, with, with noise. There can be times where we just, we're going to take a minute here. We're going to come before the Lord. We're gathering our thoughts. But then there's this all, also a long, awkward silence where our thoughts aren't really on God. They're like, oh, who's going to pray next? Should I pray? What will they think? You know, all the kind of, we've all been there, right? You know that internal kind of dialogue. So there should just be an eagerness for us to pray when we're together as, as believers. It should just be an overflow out of what we already do in our private life. And so he comes then to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer isn't the only pray, prayer, right? This is what you must pray. Pray these exact words. Because we see other prayers recorded in Scripture that aren't those exact words. But what he's given us is a framework. He's given us a model. And it's not just a model of prayer. It's really a model of what a God-oriented life is like. And so the first part is oriented toward God, verses 9 and 10. And then the second part is kind of related to our, our uh, human needs, uh, human relationships um, uh, in, this, in this way as well. So let me, we'll just look at a few of these uh, quickly. Um, again, we're not going to be able to say everything about everything. Um, but let's, let's just look at a few kind of categories, if you will. Um, and the first perspective I think that we want to see is this. When we come to prayer, it's an opportunity for worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Jesus brings these two ideas of majesty and intimacy together. He's the king, and yet he's our Father. There's the intimacy of our Father, and yet there's the majesty of hallowed be your name Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, Jesus is clearly stressing the greatness of God in his heavenly glory and what we sometimes call the creator-creature distinction. He is in heaven while we are on earth. He is heavenly while we are earthly. He is the eternal one while we are his creatures, creatures made by him and dependent on him for every breath we breathe. And this is why we are to hallow his name. We're to honor his name. It's not that we can... Um, make God's name more holy than it is. 
but we're reminded how much we need his help to recognize just how holy and other he is. There's a reverence there, and yet we get to dare call him Father. Because the one who has made and owns the universe has brought us right into the center of his family. We are united with Christ. And because of that union with Christ, we get to call God Father. We get to call Jesus our brother. The privilege that this entails is ever only known by a royal child. Only royalty can know that kind of access to and closeness with a great king. And it's all of ours in Christ, right? Um, I'm not a big fan of monarchy in general. If you are, that's cool, that's fine. Um, But it is a good picture, isn't it? Uh, Of even this week being reminded of a dirty old American (laughs) getting intimacy with the queen herself. Why? Because she was brought into the family. She wasn't of royal blood. Even though she was an actress and famous, I doubt she could just stroll in to the queen's palace. Even with her influence, celebrity, wealth, didn't have that access before. But now does. Because she was brought into the family. And I know everyone's experience of fathers isn't positive, right? May, I'm sure there's a scale of, of good dads, and none of us, um, now that I am one, um, always feel like I'm never, you know, no, none of us are nailing that and getting it perfect. Um, my dad wasn't perfect. He did his best with the tools he had, and he didn't have a lot of tools, but he did his best with that. But we shouldn't let that get in our way of thinking of God as Father. We all know what a good father is. We know what a good father should be like, and that's what God is like. He is faithful to us. He is, we can depend on him. And so when we say this prayer, our father, it acknowledges that we belong to something bigger than ourselves, and even bigger than just our local church. We belong to God himself. The next part that we see is is the father, the king's rule, and his mission. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, as we sung this prayer this morning, right? Now enthroned at the, in heaven at the Father's right hand, Jesus rules and he reigns his people through his word and by his Holy Spirit. And we're asking God, there should be a greater desire in our hearts to see the will of God lived out, not just in our own lives, although it certainly starts there, but even beyond that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, this pushes right into the human condition. Our instinct is to do whatever we want, the way we want, when we want, as often as we want, right? I mean, that's essentially what being a, a kid is. I just want to do what I want when I want, and I don't want to be told what to do. And we all look at that and be like, oh, immaturity. And yet, if we're really honest, I look at the mirror, essentially, oh, man, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Just getting to do whatever I want, whenever I want. No rules, no boundaries, and yet this centers us back to, no, my way actually isn't the best way. It's God's way that is actually the best for human flourishing, not just me, but us as a society together. And so we ask that God's will 
would be done. And again, this is why it's so important that we pray in accordance with the scripture, because even as John pray, uh, um, showed us from this morning, he read all of that and said, this is the will of the, of the Lord, right? So you want to know what God's will is that, you, that should be done in your life, but also for us uh, broader? We look to his word, right? Sometimes it's just really explicit. First Thessalonians, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. All right, well, that, now I got to pray about that because my flesh detached from God doesn't want that. I, I want sexual satisfaction however I want it and not within the confines of how God says, actually, if you do sex that way, it, it, it actually doesn't lead to your pleasure. It doesn't lead to your joy or well, my short term, but eventually that's going to end in destruction. And we see that played out on a broader societal level, isn't it? Within kind of what we really thought was going to be amazing with kind of sexual liberty, we now are reaping a lot of the negative effects of that. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not always a person of gratitude. I don't always give thanks for the things that God brings into my life. I need to pray that God would actually make me more grateful, right? So we pray that God's will would be our will. That it would be on earth as it is in heaven, right? And that's also then brings us not just to God's rule, but his mission. Because how many people worship God in heaven? What percentage? Good job. 100%. 100%. Right? Everybody. Every knee bows. Every, like, no one is under any kind of illusion of who God is in heaven. It's where his rule and reign is perfect, but it's also where everybody worships him. And so this should motivate us as well. We want to see more people come into the kingdom of God while he still is patient and gives us opportunities for that. So we're about his rule, but we're also about his mission. Now, you can have this kind of what we call in theological terms an over-realized eschatology, um, which just means that, okay, well, then we can somehow, if we'll do certain things, then we can bring God's kingdom now here on earth. And only, only God, only Jesus returning will bring his kingdom to its full fruition, so we can't manipulate God into somehow um, acting in that way. But what we can do is be his people as individuals, trying to be more holy as he is holy, what this whole sermon is trying to bring us into, that my interior and exterior are whole, integrated person where people of integrity following Jesus, and that then we would collectively as a local church that sits within the broader church would be a witness to the world of what his kingdom is like. And then we would draw people into that. And so we live in the, in the, his kingdom is at hand, it's here, it's now, it's present, and yet it's not yet. It's not fully here yet. But we're to live as if we are living in that kingdom now, that it would be your will here on earth as it is in heaven. It's why we modify this and localize this phrase, right? We say it often that it would be in Belfast as it is in heaven. That it would be wherever you work or on your street as it is in heaven. Because it's easy to go, oh, on earth, yeah, for all mankind. And then kind of go about my own business. 
But if it has to be my street or where I work as it is in heaven or in my family as it is in heaven or in my heart as it is in heaven or in my city as it is in heaven, then, well, that has to include me then, isn't it? And I have to bear some responsibility in that. And at the mention of heaven means these petitions come together. They also focus our eyes on the future as well. We don't get caught up just here now in our present. Okay, moving on. We also then look at at God's provision for us. Give us this day our daily bread. This is hard for us in, in a modern world, right? We've become so accustomed to the availability of anything that we could want or need that we've kind of lost touch with the biblical kind of worldview of, of supply and demand, if you will, right? Because I could just prime that thing and it'll be here tomorrow. I can have a guy on a bike deliver me McDonald's, although I don't know why you'd want to do that. Cold fries are the worst. Right, but you can if you want to. Like you can just order food and it shows up to your door. Like everything that we have is just instant. And then sometimes then we can kind of forget where it all comes from. And so this centers us back to us recognizing that God is our provider. Even if it even if he uses a, a guy on a bike in a really ugly teal uniform. This is uh, when Martin, Martin Luther kind of speaks to this. He says, Luther spoke of the, the milkmaker and the baker. Or for you, that might be the delivery guy or however else we get, uh, Amazon. As masks that God hides behind in order to answer our prayer for daily sustenance. In every gift, God is ultimately the giver, yet tenderly he hides his blinding majesty and otherwise terrifying sovereignty behind the creaturely means that are familiar to us. However, those of us in technologically developed cultures rarely encounter the milkmaids and bakers anymore, whose goods we purchase at the supermarket. And so our piety, praying for our daily bread, often seems remote from our actual experience. Do you remember, if, if, uh, if you know your Bible, daily bread should bring your mind back to God's people in the desert? And him having to provide them, it wasn't just bread, it was daily bread. It was that manna, and they could only connect it, collect enough for that day. If they collected too much, it would spoil and go rotten, and they couldn't use it. So they could only, they could only get what they needed for one day. Because it meant that they had to trust God that the next day he would provide again. The next day he would provide again. Sometimes we can lose sight of that, right? We know what our salary is. We've got our budget. We've got it all worked out. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Um, God's blessing and his kindness and his goodness to us provide those things. But our heart, as we pray, as we come before God, should be one of thanksgiving and one of him asking that he would provide what we need and trust that he actually will. Next, then we see, uh, fourth, the Father's grace and his mercy Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, or as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. We know that we come to God often burdened by our guilt because of things that we've thought or said or done. But Jesus teaches us that when we do this, when we come before him, when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those things. When we confess whatever debts we have before God, when we're honest and no longer try to hide them from him, and we bring them to him in repentance, we experience his grace and his mercy, his assurance of our pardon. 
So confession in the kingdom of God isn't becoming a Christian again. It's not that we fall in and out of, of um, God holding us as his own, but rather it's the unburdening that comes with confessing and asking God to forgive us when our relationship has gotten twisted or, or distant. And even though our instinct is to hide from God as our first father and mother did in the garden, Jesus is helping us here to see that we should go to him. Right? Um, I saw somewhere, um, maybe it's on Twitter or something, there's two ways that when we've messed up, there's kind of two reactions that we can have. And one is the, oh, wait till my dad finds out. Or, I need to go and tell my dad. And for the Christian, it should be that latter one. Man, I messed up. I really got that wrong. I got to go tell my dad. Because we have the confidence to know that he's not going to reject us. He's not an angry God ready to backhand us. He disciplines those who he loves for sure. But he offers us grace and mercy. And he gives us this qualifier on this, doesn't he? What does he say as he even ends this? He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Now, this isn't a, if you do this, then God will do that in some kind of a trade. He's saying the way that you know that you've experienced the Father's grace is if you extend that grace to other people. If the words, as we also have forgiven our, our debtors or those who have trespassed against us, that sticks in our throat, if it can't be spoken without names and faces of those that we've refused to forgive, then the first part of our prayer, forgive us our debts or our trespasses, it falls flat, it falls to the ground. They're inseparably linked. He'll go on in Matthew 18, right, to talk about that parable that we, that we looked at a few weeks ago. The person who knows their debt before God and turns to him for forgiveness is the recipient of such grace that they can't help but give that grace to other people. And then the Father's protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, again, this, this idea of temptation isn't the way that we think about temptation. It's um, the word that's used here is, is more trials or tests. So don't, don't try me to the point of anything that, that will break me that I can't handle. Um, so God gives Job a temptation or a test. God never tempts us to do anything that is against his will or that is sinful or evil. But we recognize that there is evil in the world. There is a source of that evil in Satan. And he prowls like a lion seeking to devour us. And so we ask God to protect us from the evil one. To not lead us into a test that would, that would be too much for us. That would overwhelm us. And so when our indwelling sin is stirred up by the temptations that surround us. When the even one prowls in our direction, Jesus tells us to pray to be delivered from those things. And the fact that he does is this assurance for us that the Father is both willing and able to do so. In all of our weakness, he is strong. In all of our need, he provides. 
In all of our sin, he is gracious. This is what it means to live before God with open hearts, with real hearts. And that's very different from the person who's praying all these flowery prayers for the sake of the ears of other people. But the prayers aren't really to the Father. The prayers aren't really trusting that He would protect. It's not really asking for His grace or His mercy or asking us to extend that to other people or for Him to provide for us. It's not really about His rule and His reign and His mission moving forward. It's not about His kingdom. Because it's not about worshiping the Father. It's about being worshipped by other people. And this really is what Jesus is driving after in this this sermon. That real followers of Jesus have real prayers to a real God who's their real Father who can act. And we live in life of dependence of His sovereignty, of His goodness, of His grace, and of His mercy. Let's be those people. Let's be those people, and not like the hypocrites. We live a life out of fear about what other people think, a life of trying to impress, a life of trying to get accolades from other people, because Jesus says, if that's what you're after, when you get it, that's all there is. There's no life everlasting. There's no communion with the Father. There's no God as king and provider and protector. There's just you and other people and whatever they can give you. And if you know people, you know they let you down at times, right? I will let you down if I haven't already. I let some of you down this week. But God our Father never does. And so let's live for him. Let's live for that audience of one and encourage each other to do that as well. Let's pray.